And we're going to read uh, one verse this morning. Not 49, just one. I feel at home. (laughs) This is back where I belong. Uh, Matter of fact, for many it won't even be reading, it'll be just uh, remembering. Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are such an awesome God, and we thank you for the love that you have shown us in so many ways, for the reality that in you we do not want, for you are our shepherd. We are grateful for the privilege of being able to gather together to worship you today, and knowing that we are joined here this morning with the holy angels who rejoice in your presence. We ask our God that you would help us to likewise rejoice in you, and help us also to understand your word. And to see this declaration, this tremendous profession by the Apostle Paul, and to make it our own, that we too may declare for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Our Father, we pray for our Sunday school class. We pray in particular for Phil and Barb, that they will present their work well and that you'll help that adult class to understand more of the ministry that's going on. But we pray in particular for our children. Lord, Sunday school is a wonderful time in which a teacher is able to meet with a small group of children and be able to explain your gospel to them. Father, would you allow that gospel to work powerfully in their hearts and to bring them to salvation? Would you do these things for Jesus' sake? Amen. Anybody else kind of really interested in, it's borderline fascinated with like Amelia Earhart? I think it's a it's it's an incredible story, and so one of the things I've I've done is uh, uh, went through a biography of her life a, a little bit ago, and I've actually been through it uh, I think about three times now because I'm just fascinated by by her life. Uh, not a Christian, uh, not not really moral, uh, but yet an amazing adventurer and and a woman who just did incredible things. Um, and we know you know the end of her life that uh, she was seeking to circumnavigate uh, the, uh, the globe and to be the first person to accomplish such a task. And she got to uh, New Guinea and uh, was on uh, kind of the next to the final leg. She couldn't quite get to Hawaii from New Guinea in her plane, so she had to refuel. And from the very beginning, she knew this was the most dangerous part uh, because they had to land on, uh, I think it was a, a little island that's like a, about a mile and a half by half a mile uh, dimension, if you can imagine that, and trying to find that out in the middle of the Pacific somewhere. And uh, as they were going along, it was uh, some 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 challenges that they faced. But but she was she was heading home. I mean, it was at the very end of of this journey, and she's heading home, and she's she's looking forward to it. And as they're going, they got probably blown off course to some extent. They uh, had some low clouds, weren't really able to see where things were, and uh, they're. They blew a fuse, it, it appears, on the uh, radio that was supposed to help them uh, find out where they were, and it was just a, a, a problem, and in being lost, uh, she and Fred Noonan perished as they were heading home. This year, we've been talking about heading home. That's been our theme for the preaching ministry, and we started out by looking at heaven and, and trying to say, well, what is that home that we're heading for, that home that we've been created for, that home that we've been redeemed for, to understand what that is. And then we spent time in the book of Daniel trying to understand 
um, what it means to then build God's kingdom while we're living in man's kingdom here upon this earth. And how do we go about that? And that's how we spent our time in the preaching ministry this, this year. Um, and so as I think about just the idea of, of heading home, this passage from Philippians uh, came to my mind. As uh, in Philippians, Paul's writing at a time in which he is in prison. Um, and he's writing to this church in Philippi. He's trying to comfort them and encourage them, all the while knowing that in prison he may very well be executed. And he's not really sure whether or not they're going to execute him. And as he's wrestling through that, he explains to the Philippians the course of his life. And in one sense, he says, I'm headed home. Whether they're going to take me now or later, it doesn't matter, but I'm heading home. And he tells us the course of his life. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As we're heading home, and as we're, we're wrapping up that, that preaching uh, portion of, of heading home, uh, just so you, you know, um, uh, we'll be uh, starting... Well, in, in the end of November is when we'll start our, our Advent series, and so uh, things will all be shifting along in uh, a couple weeks. Uh, Robin and I will be gone for most of uh, uh, November, so we're really wrapping up this series. And so as we're wrapping up, I want us to be thinking about how do we set the course of our life? And we can set that at any point, whether it's very young or at uh, midway or, or toward the end. We can set that course. How do we set it? I think that this passage tells us a couple ways. And the first is, we set the course of our life by making Jesus our life. Notice what he says in verse 20 when he starts out, for to me. He starts out with to me. And he's very emphatic in the, in the Greek text. To me is set apart so that there's, there's a special focus on that. And he isn't necessarily saying, so y'all ought to. It's not an imperative to all of us. It's a statement, this is the reality for me. Um, in his uh, uh, commentary on the New Testament, Vincent says, not this Vincent, uh, Vincent, the last name, uh, Greek scholar, he says, whatever life may be to others, to me, to live is Christ. And that's a, a great, if you will, rough translation of what he's trying to say and taking into account the emphasis that Paul has made in this sentence. And it's more than simply saying that Jesus is the most important thing in my life. And we may say that frequently. And we may want to say, well, Jesus is, is the most important thing in my life. And I think there's, a, there's a, a, a latent problem in such a statement in that it makes Jesus a priority which, frankly, can shift, right? And sometimes we can make other things more important. And Jesus doesn't want to be a priority in our life. He wants to be the entirety of our life. If we think of it, even the idea that he wants to be the summation, that everything adds up to him. So as we set goals in our life, we begin to set goals and say, I want to accomplish this. And, and that goal has to be within a context, within a sphere. I want to do this as I'm seeking to glorify God, because glorifying God is more important. If I never reach that goal, but glorifying God is what must take place. Jesus is the central portion of my life. He is my life, and I try to make him that. To do that, I'm, I'm going to have to be active. Paul says, for me, to live is Christ. Now we'll look at the first part, to live. To live is Christ. 
He's not talking about living in just a, a passive sort of way, that we're all alive, our heart is beating, and to some extent we, we really have no control over that, right? It, it's just beating. I can't necessarily will my heart to, to stop or, or anything along those lines. It's going, and, and, and we can think about living in such a passive sort of way. Well, I'm alive, so I'm living. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying for me to live, that is that choice to live, that, that active volitional element of my existence in which I am actively seeking to live. Um, I, I think it's uh, Ernest Hemingway wrote uh, a short story called The Short Happy Life of Francis McComer. Has anybody read that? I was, I was guessing not. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit uh, obscure. Um, but he writes about, uh, and again, you know, uh, Hemingway is not exactly a, a model of virtue or, or faith in any way, but he does capture an idea that I think is important for us to think about when we think about living and the importance of, of being active in life. Francis McComer is an individual who is uh, um, controlled by everyone around him. He's living a passive life. And everything he's doing is just other people doing things to him. He's married and his wife says, well, we're going on a, an African safari and we're going to go hunting after lions. And so they're going off to Africa to hunt lions. And Francis is out there. And, and while he's out there, uh, his, his wife is unfaithful to him. And, and the guide is some guy who's just kind of bullying him. And he's going along with it all the time. And he sees a lion and he's terrified by it. The next day he goes out. And he sits down, and, and, and the idea is the short, happy life is right before he dies, he sits down and he faces the charging lion. And in facing that charging lion, it's at that moment that finally Francis McComer says, I'm going to live. I'm not going to let anybody dictate my life. I'm here, and I'm choosing now to live. And it's just for an instant, which is the, the irony that uh, uh, Hemingway wants to bring in. But I think that the picture is, is good and helpful. That God has not put us here on this earth to be passive in our lives. As a matter of fact, if you look at Genesis 1 and you think about when God says, let us make man in our image. Think about what God had revealed about himself by that point in Genesis 1. The image that God was that he wanted to display in Adam what had he shown of himself? He'd shown of himself that he was, he was a being who created out of nothing. That he was one who chose to make things and brought them into existence and was powerful in his moving about. And after showing that about himself, then he says, let's make man in our image. So he puts us here not to be passive, but to be active so that Paul says, for me to live is Christ. I'm going to live. I'm going to purposely move forward living for Jesus Christ in my life. What does that mean for you? To live as Christ. It means that you can choose each moment. Will I live this moment for Jesus Christ? Now that's a lot of work. It takes effort to be aware of my moment. To be aware of, of my place in relationship to other people and my place in relationship to God. But at each moment as I'm driving down the road and someone cuts me off, to decide at that moment for me to live is Christ. And I will choose to live in that moment and represent Jesus Christ. This morning I was reading a, a devotional uh, from J.H. Uh, Jowett, one of my uh, favorite authors that I just love to, to read, and it's called the, the Eagle's Life. And, and he was writing about uh, the, the bells, church bells, 
and the bells on the horses. And he talked about the bells on the horses, and he talked about the church bells are, are talking about a sanctification. And he says, people expect you to be holy in church, right? So let's say that, you know, right now as we're sitting in the sermon, you know, it's the holiest moment of our, our week, unless maybe it's during the uh, congregational prayer, that could be a little bit holier, but anyway, it's all going to be right in here. And he's saying, but what people ought to see is our holiness in the workplace, on the horses' bells as they go through streets. That's when the holiness ought to be shown. It's in those moments that we decide that I'm going to live for Christ. For me to live is Christ. And it's at that time that I will do it. So we see in Matthew chapter 16, 24, Jesus tells us, be sure that I'm getting my right reference here. We have it there. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Notice, that's not passive, any one of it. It starts out with the determination, I want to come after Jesus. And then it involves self-denial, taking up the cross, and the choice to continually follow after Jesus Christ. It's a decisive, moment-by-moment event. If I'm going to make Jesus my life, it begins by being active. And secondly, it means I need to actually pursue Jesus. For he says, to live is Christ. To live is not just my life. To live is not for me to accomplish my objectives. To live is not for me to accomplish my goals. But for me to live, it's Christ. And it's a matter of pursuing Him. It's not a matter of just knowing about Him. Being able to sit down and to say, well, you know, who is Jesus? Well, I'll tell you who God is. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, right? I could be. I, I didn't listen closely, but yeah. Uh, it's, it's not just being able to say those things or even to be able to explain all of what that means. What is the justice of God? What is the mercy of God? What is the compassion of God? Tell me about His love. Now, that's a good thing, but that's not what it is necessarily to live for Christ. It's not about Christianity. It's not just being an individual who goes to church on Sundays and goes through the religious rituals on a daily basis of reading my Bible and praying, of thanking God before meals, or even of just witnessing. It's more than that. Following after Jesus is not just moral excellence. Now, it should include all of those elements, shouldn't it? All of that's, that's essential to what we are, but that's not it. It's more than that. Paul is talking about the Jesus that he met personally. You remember as he was persecuting Christians and was heading to Damascus and he was cast down and he saw a bright light and he was blinded until Ananias came and brought him the gospel and then he had his sight restored to him as he had life given to him. In that moment when the blindness came, remember he looked and he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He had a face-to-face -face meeting with Jesus Christ. And it changed him. It transformed him. To live is Christ. Um, Dick Kyes, in his book, Chameleon Christianity, uh, writes about such a reality that should be a reality in each of our lives as Christians. He writes, the Christian claim, of course, is anything but trivial, for we believe that individuals and the whole community have actually met the transcendent God, the creator of heaven and earth, who in turn is deeply concerned for us and even loves us. 
This infinite personal creator God has made himself known to us through his son joining the human race. He has opened the way for us, tiny, fragile, bent, twisted people, to know him. And he is committed to our well-being, even to the point of forgiving us for sin and granting us life forever. Whether one thinks these claims are true or not, it is impossible to consider them trivial. But do Christians look like people who've been in contact with such a God? Are these claims believable to a generation steeped in postmodern suspicion? What evidence do we show of our personal relationship with an unimaginably great being outside of this world order? If we seem to be just like everyone else in our thoughts, speech, possessions, priorities, and behavior, we make mockery of our Christian claims. Those who say that God is a human invention will seem to have the far more plausible explanation. I think that he's really hit on a a reality that's important for us to recognize. The Christian claim is we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who lived on this earth some 2,000 years ago. And he has invaded our life and we know him. This is what it is to live is Christ. What is it? How 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 do we do that? How do we experience that? I think the, the first key is, is to spend time with him daily. And I mean time with him. Remember Jesus said to the Jews of his day, you search the scriptures because you think in these you'll have eternal life, but it is these that testify of me, but you're unwilling to come to me that you may live. So even the Jews of his day set aside Jesus in order for the Bible, to read the Bible. And we need to read the Bible that we might find Jesus. And so to spend time with him daily and actually meeting with him to take time in opening up the scripture and to consider his character. Think about his character that is shown in, in uh, even places like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 8. That great description of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. And we go on through this list, but just take some time to meditate on what does it mean that love is patient? What does it mean that Christ is patient? How has he been patient with me in my life? Where has he shown that to be a reality? And to begin to give him thanks for the patience that he's shown me. Because surely I try his patience. I'm pretty sure I try my wife's patience. How much more do I try my Savior's patience? But he continues to love me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, we see what his values are. And what is it that he really, really values? He says in verse 13, But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. What does Christ value as I'm meeting with God? What is it that's really important to him? Faith. Okay, Lord, how do I I live that life of faith in you to make that a reality? Hope. How do I live as though heaven is my home and I'm hoping for that and love? How do I love the people around me knowing that Christ is with me and in me? And then to consider his personal love for you. Romans 5.8 tells us, For God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. To take time daily to meditate on these realities is a way to draw close to Christ and to not keep them just as, as intellectual ideas that remain in the, the, the netherworld of our existence, but to make them the foundation of our life and the choices that we make on a daily basis. Aware that he is with us and we have met with him. 
Make Jesus your life. That's the starting point of setting the course. I'm setting my course. I'm going to make Jesus my life. Secondly, I'm going to make heaven my home. To make heaven your home. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16, we read about individuals who have done that. He says that all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see that all these people that we look at in in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that great hall of faith that we are so familiar with, we recognize what set them all apart. What set them apart is they never actually received those promises themselves, but they kept looking for them, waiting for them. What set them apart is that they lived their life here as sojourners, as exiles, recognizing that they were constantly moving toward that which was their home, which was heaven. And for us to do the exact same thing and to say, this is not my home. This is not where I belong. This is not where I will spend eternity. But my home is in heaven and I will live my life for heaven. And I will make choices to head toward heaven. To make that my home. In Colossians chapter 3. Paul talks about this to the Colossians as he says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Is that true? So I set my heart on heaven. I set my home as being in heaven. And I just want to warn us, to beware of the, the, the shift within Christendom and within Christianity, and particularly in American Christianity, that, that there's a shift that makes me want to make earth my home. That talks about being too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. And I love that C.S. Lewis points out that it's actually probably the exact opposite. The people who are the most earthly good were those who are most heavenly minded, if we look at um, history. And I think we find that to be true. Those who had their hearts set on heaven and said, well, why don't we make things here like that? Instead of, why don't we just settle for things that are here and believe this is our heaven? We need to be very careful and never allow ourselves to be so caught up in that, but to keep seeking the things above. As a matter of fact, uh, a couple pastors... Uh, Richard Baxter and William Gurnall had, had these things to say. These are both pastors that were around in the, the 17th century. And, uh, and, and consider the, the words that they wrote. As Richard Baxter says, If a man that is desperately sick today did believe that he should arise sound the next morning. Let me stop. Richard Baxter also ministered in, in London during the Great Plague. And uh, he understood what this was for an individual knowing that I may die tomorrow. If a man that is desperately sick today did believe that he should arise sound the next morning, or a man today in desperate poverty had assurance that he should tomorrow arise a prince, would they be afraid to go to bed? Of course not. Of course not. There'd be no fear of going to bed in that situation. Can we get a couple batteries on this? Let me just unplug it, and you can take it, Pat. You'd think that would be easy. And now I've got to stand still for a few minutes. 
we'll see if this can happen. Can I, can I even speak that way? Um, so then we, we looked then at William Grinnell, who was alive at the same time, a contemporary of Baxter, and what he has to say, he says, Let thy hope of heaven master thy fear of death. Why shouldst thou be afraid to die who hopest to live by dying? You see that both of these men, both of these pastors had the same idea. And what that idea was is the recognition that as they set their hope on heaven, it made it easier to live life here, and it took away the fear of death. And voila. Our tech team is amazing, aren't they? Well done. Thank you very much. Paul who again was potentially facing execution, was able to write, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was not concerned with death because heaven was his home. Make heaven your home. To do that, it starts with faith. He says, for me, to die is gain. Do I believe that? I'm not saying that it's such a thing that I say, well, therefore I want to rush things along. It's not that at all. But as I begin to recognize that when God takes me from this place, the next step is actually better. As I counsel individuals who go through incredibly difficult times and and especially who are fearful of the future, often I'll have them begin to think through, what's the worst case scenario? And as they go through the worst case scenario and begin to talk about you know, things like, well, I could conceivably lose my family, I could lose my job, I could find myself uh, homeless, I could be, be you know, living underneath a bridge somewhere, and I, and I, and I say, and then what? Well, I, I, I suppose, and then I die. And you see, we live in an age in which we believe that's the end of the story, right? And so I ask, and then what? What then? Well, then I'll be with Jesus. Okay, so let me be clear. The worst possible scenario ends with you with Jesus. That's as bad as it can possibly get. Is that true? Then I can face tomorrow. Then I can face what's coming next. I need not fear because I know that to be true. I believe it. I believe in reconciliation with God. I believe that as a a foundation, as the bulwark of, of my life, that I believe there is such a thing as reconciliation with God. There is a God, He is a holy God, He is a just God, and I have been reconciled to Him because His Son took my place upon the cross and bore the penalty for all of my sins, paid them in full, lived a righteous life, and clothed me in that righteousness, and I can be reconciled to my God. Amen? Do you believe that? As I believe that, I know that heaven is gain. That to die is gain. I believe that God is faithful. That God who said if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful in that promise. He said, I will cast all of your transgressions into the depths of the sea. He said, I will not remember your transgressions again. That God who made those promises is faithful. 
and I can rest in him. And by believing this, it's an act of my will. I'm choosing to act as though it is true that reconciliation with God has been accomplished through Jesus and that the God who reconciles me is faithful. I'm going to make choices as though that's the case. And I know I've asked it a couple times, but I want to ask seriously and ask us to contemplate, do you really believe that today? Do you believe that you can be reconciled through Jesus to God the Father? Make sure this day that you've put your trust in that, that you've made a life choice and said, this is where I land. I know this to be true, that Jesus reconciles me to God and God is faithful. Make that commitment this day. And then desire heavenly treasures. Treasures we seek in many different forms. Um, most of us aren't, aren't uh, dying just to be rich, right? Uh, very few of us have established a goal that, you know, I want to be a multimillionaire by, you know, the age of 20. Uh, that isn't necessarily what drives all of us. Or, or... But yet we're seeking some level of treasures. We're seeking it to be a more comfortable life here, right? And that's not bad. You know, we, we, we like a heated auditorium to meet for worship, right? Aren't seat backs nice for a long-winded sermon, right? It's kind of nice to be able to have somewhere to lean back and not just have this, this, this uh, slab of wood that I've got to sit on for who knows how long. Not an hour and 15 minutes like it was a few weeks ago. Really sorry about that. Um, but that's not the end all. That's not the only thing that I live for. I also... And I mostly want to live for the treasures of heaven. What are the treasures of heaven? You know what I, I think of and I treasure about heaven is the promise that there's no more pain. Right? No more pain. And, and trust me, each, each year you get older, that becomes a more precious treasure, doesn't it? Because that pain comes on every time you stand up. Right? Rolling out of bed, you think, is the most wonderful time. And, 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 and it gets better after the first couple steps. But at first, it's a challenging time. You know, the, the plantar fasciitis gets in there, the back's a little bit stiff, the knees aren't really great, and all of that goes in, and that's just getting up. Hot dog. <laughs> but also the pain of, of, of lost relationships, of loved ones that, that may pass through surprise or, or even known illnesses, the pain of, of, of seeing a loved one have to deal with uh, the difficulty of dementia or, or other hardships and diseases, those are, those are all going to be gone. Do you treasure that? Oh my. Lord, those are the times when we cry out, Lord, come, come quickly. There's no more pain. Maybe even more precious is there's no more sin. No more sin in heaven. None. And it's fantastic because, I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure same thing's happened to you, it's happened to me. People have sinned against me in my life. How about you? Right? And, it, and it's not fun. It's hard. It hurts. And sometimes you lose a relationship because of it. And you've got to deal with that to see sin around me 
To see, even through this, this last year, churches that are destroyed, pastors losing their, their, their job, and uh, churches uh, being split and, and, and divided, and some churches ceasing to exist, and, and all because of how we react to a, a, a global pandemic. And then we have these Christians who are to be known by our love. We can't even get along in such a moment as this. And it's, it breaks my heart. But she was really hopeful about the treasure of heaven. Is that my sin's going to be gone? Not just the sins against me. I'm not going to harm anyone else anymore. Years ago, Robert and I uh, suffered uh, a couple miscarriages. And after one of them, um, I think it was our first, we were talking with uh, Michael, who was five, and told him what had happened. And he said, so, so the baby will never have any spankings? Hmm. Yeah. Still, to a five-year-old, that's what was most important in life. (laughs) And that was the hope that was there. But the realization, as I began to meditate on it, I wrote a poem. And one of the thoughts that came to me is I was just thinking about what it's like for this little child to grow up without skin. To have all of her memories to be in heaven. And to have never experienced sin in her own life or, 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 or from the people around her. What a rich, rich, merciful kindness of God. Yeah, there's some good stuff here on earth that, that she may have missed out on. But oh my, that day when we will no longer hurt people with our sin, with our failings. And maybe the greatest treasure of heaven is that positive affirmation of our Savior that when we enter in to glory and He greets us each, and I can just see Him as we step in, we're, we're going to know all of the ways that we'd sinned at that moment. We're going to be flooded with tears in the realization of what has taken place and that His hand is going to come out and He's going to wipe those tears never to return And then he's going to look us in the eye and he's going to say, well done. Well done. To the point even that that, that one of the the books that I love is Atlas Shrugged, written by uh, Ayn Rand. I keep quoting these people. I'm saying, you know, don't follow their faith. But but nonetheless, there's there's great truth. This this atheist is writing about what, what she longs for her whole life. And what it was, was to be told one day by the people she respected, well done. This atheist who'd grown up in in Russia, knew nothing of of Jesus Christ, knew that's what she longed for more than anything else, is to hear those words, and that we might one day hear those words from our Savior. Well done. I long to hear those words. That is the treasure of heaven. Is that what you want? No more pain, no more sin, and the positive affirmation of your Savior. That's what it is. To make heaven your home. If I mention Frank Worsley, does that come to uh, strike memory in anybody's minds? Probably if I say Ernest Shackleton, now that'll, that'll catch our attention a little bit more. Frank Worsley uh, was with, uh, was the chief navigator for Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton's uh, accomplishments on the Antarctic uh, expedition. The expedition was an utter failure, but his uh, demonstration of leadership is maybe the greatest demonstration of leadership ever. 
that what he was able to accomplish. And in the end, Frank Worsley was having to navigate a small 23-foot boat. Okay, you understand you can get a speedboat on one of these lakes. It's probably a little bit bigger than 23 foot, right? But he's on a 23 foot boat and is going to have to go over 800 miles through the roughest seas on our planet to go from Elephant Island to South Georgia Island. And they had to find South Georgia Island. During this time, as uh, winter was rapidly approaching, it was late fall. Winter's rapidly approaching. It just so happens, because of the luck of Shackleton, that they were facing a hurricane that was going through. So yay. And did I mention it was almost winter? So the weather is incredibly freezing, and the waves were 22 feet high. Did I mention that it was a 23-foot boat? And here they are, five men or four men on this 22-foot boat, 23-foot boat that are going through these seas, and it's uh, all this storm, so they can't really see the stars. They're having to use something called dead reckoning, which is able to try to find this location, this small island where they would be saved. And they did it. And Worsley was able to take the James Caird, which is the name of that boat, and to guide it directly until they got there. It took them over 16 days before they saw land. But can you imagine the emotions on their, inside them when they saw that land and the, the pure ecstatic joy that they'd set their course and they'd reached it. They'd accomplished that. What a tremendous accomplishment. We're heading home. They were hoping to head home. As you're heading home, set the course of your life. And that course needs to be to make Jesus your life and to make heaven your home. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for your word. Your word which guides us. Your word which reveals you to us. Father, grant that we may really set the course of our lives. I pray for this congregation, Lord. I ask that you would help us to be men, women, and children. Who can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen.